would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. I want to look at a brief passage. Chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. I'll start reading. We'll be focusing our attention on 10 to 12. The Apostle Paul is a fascinating man on a number of fronts, obviously in his unconverted state. When he was Saul of Tarsus, an angry, feisty character, uh, rabbi, rabbis, a Pharisee of Pharisees, proud, boastful, self-centered man, and full of hostility. And uh, I'm sure it probably registered on his face as he encountered those who were of the way, which is a fascinating name for Christians, isn't it? People of the way. And uh, then he's transformed. And now all of a sudden he's, he's fathering churches. And it's amazing how this man who's a bachelor um, is engaged in language where he talks about family and fathering. And uh, he has a son named Timothy who's a son spiritually, He's not Timothy's physical father, but he's like a father to him. Paul actually even refers to himself as nurturing, and he uses mothering words uh, to describe himself. Now, make no mistake, when Paul uses mothering words to describe himself, he is not saying at all that he is effeminate. He is not. He is a man's man. And uh, if ever we have a generation that needs to see men's men, a real man of God, uh, it's our generation. And as Paul is writing to this church, he's writing to a church that is full of a culture that is patently wicked, wretched in every description. It's very much like our culture. And one of the things as you study history, and some people don't like studying history, I love studying history, that's how we learn. And that's why we're part, partly in the mess we're in today because we have no concept of history. And uh, one of the uh, <clears throat> senators uh, stood up uh, this past week and said, this nation is losing its moorings. It's losing its way. A senator did this. We don't expect a lot, I have to confess, we have not expected a lot out of senators in the past that generally patronage appointments to uh, uh, sort of wag their tail when the government tells them and so forth. Uh, but uh, uh, she stood up and she said what needs to be said and said it in public form and it needs to be broadcast far and wide. And so we have a, a picture of Paul writing to a culture that is very much like our culture or like our culture has become. Even Rome despised the culture of the Greeks. The Greeks had become so pagan and uh, Rome didn't follow after the Greek culture. They took the Greek language and used it far and wide but they didn't follow the patterns of the Greek culture immediately. But they were bit by bit gradually worn down, very much like our culture. As he writes the church, it's a church that he has a warm affection for, and he uses fatherly language, and it gives us a pattern of what we're to be in terms of our caring uh, as men this morning. Now, I hope ladies will listen to it. I hate to think that... Uh, this becomes sort of a free pass. Uh, but 
Paul, as he writes, says this in verse 9. We'll pick it up there. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devotedly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave before you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's ask the Lord to bless us as we look to his word. Father, we thank you for your holy scriptures. And we are always in need, Lord, of your word to speak to us. And we thank you that it speaks to us clearly. And we pray that you, by your spirit, would equip us. That you would write these words upon our hearts for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. One of the things I learned a long time ago in ministry is whenever you have to go to a, a doctor's office or a hospital, uh, bring your own reading material. Uh, a doctor's office or a hospital or some such place as that is a great place to catch up on history because you, you find old magazines with old news stories and uh, the only thing typically of any relevance uh, are uh, uh, if you're into intellectual pursuits and it would be the joke section in the Reader's Digest. Uh, if you're into the culinary arts, a good recipe never gets outdated. But oftentimes it's old stuff that you read about. I found myself a few years ago on a hospital visit where I kept having to take off my gown and, and my gloves. It was one of those situations where every time you went in to see the individual, you had to gown up and glove up. And then I would go in and a nurse would come and say, I'm sorry, you're going to have to leave. So I had to take off the gloves and the gown. And a few minutes later, you can go in now. I would gown up and glove up again. And then this happened three times on one visit. I learned some lessons that day. Uh, one was in the waiting room, bring your own reading material. The other one was this, find out the suppliers of the gloves and gowns and buy their stock. <laughs> because we're going through these things incredibly whenever you do a visit. I was reading an outdated copy of the Reader's Digest. It was so outdated, it was falling apart and nobody felt led to dispose of it. I did feel led to dispose of it, but I didn't. And I actually did feel almost I should take what I wanted to read, stuff it in my pocket and read it later. So I had to, I couldn't, I felt guilty about that. But it had a fascinating article and to show you how old it was, it was actually speaking positive about the necessity of fathers. And it was asking questions like, uh, what is missing in, in the life of a child when the father is absent? And some of the things that happen to children when the father may be present but absent at the same time. And you know what that's all about when, when he's not engaged in the lives of the children. And uh, so one of the things that they pointed out was this. The children that have a hands-on father, and we're not just meeting laying on of hands at that appropriate place where the extra padding is located, but rather a father that is a hands-on father by being involved in the lives of his children, obviously involved in family life. And here is what it said, that the children that have that kind of dad are five times less to commit suicide, 32 times less uh, liable to run away, 
20 times less to have behavioral disorders, 14 times less to, uh, to commit rape, nine times less probable of uh, dropping out of high school, and on and on the list went, showing some of the things that, that happen to kids who have lost their moorings because their father has lost his moorings. And uh, it, it just went on and on and on. The Christian Service Brigade, some of you remember that organization. I, I have to confess, I don't know if it's still operating, but years ago, uh, it was a wonderful group of, of, uh, that was started in Scotland and came over to Canada and the United States for training guys uh, to be men and in the context of a church ministry. And uh, they gave these statistics that if both your parents worship regularly at church, that there is an 80% likelihood that you'll be worshiping God as an adult. Uh, if you're only your mother worships at church, there's a 30% probability that you'll be still there as an adult. In other words, father sitting at home doing nothing or doing whatever he likes to do, which may well be nothing. Uh, and then uh, if father worships regularly with you, but mother doesn't, then there still is a 70% chance that you'll find yourself in church. Now, I, I don't want to live by statistics. We don't live by statistics. We live by God's word. But it's fascinating when you hear the testimonies of people that find themselves in church. And I've been around for a while, as you can tell. And, and I've been a Christian since the age of 12 and was taken to church all the time when I was a kid. And even after my father left the church when I was 14 years of age, it didn't have any effect on me at all. It just meant that mother and myself and my brother and later on my daughter, my daughter, uh, later on my sister would be going to church. We went from having a family at church to being mom and the kids at church. That was the difference. But it was that early start that got me deeply entrenched in the church. Did it mean that I was writing down great theological thoughts? No, I was playing OXO sometimes. But it meant that I was there and I was in the orbit of the church. And as Paul is writing, he is writing here and he is mentioning and holding up as an example of ministry, fatherhood. Now, it may be that we don't think of ourselves as ministers. And if we don't think of ourselves as ministers, we're thinking wrongly of ourselves, men. We are to think of ourselves as ministers in our home. We are to think of ourselves as having a priestly ministry in our home. We're to think of ourselves as having a headship ministry in our home. We're to think of ourselves as, as having a prophetic ministry in our home. In the little boys and girls catechism uh, that we, we used years and years ago, and then we graduated into the Keats catechism, which is more for uh, adults, young adults. But in all that labor, we were reminded in that whole study, and, and Spurgeon was a, a great user of it, and he kept saying, Hold it before your children and live it before your children. Let them know that you, the father, are the prophet, the priest, and the king. And he didn't mean it in a utilitarian way where everybody's sort of bowing down, you know, coming in, you may enter, and coming, bowing down, and going out. But rather, in, in terms of the kind of kingship that Christ Jesus is and offers, the prophetic ministry that Christ Jesus is and offers, and the priestly ministry that Christ Jesus is and offers. And Paul duplicated that in his life and took it into the church and held it up as an example for the church to look at and recognize this is the way we do it. It's hard for some of us, isn't it, in terms of, of being a father. Uh, the Lord was very patient. He, he didn't feel that I was qualified to be a father until I was a little older. Uh, try 46 for uh, 
you know, example. 46 years of age, and I, I become a father. The night before, I went to bed, and I was just a football fan. But then the next morning, I wake up, and I'm a father. And it, all of a sudden, something happened. And the realization was, I'm to do something a lot different than I've ever done it before. And I'm to do it in the context of being a father, being a father of a child, being the father of a girl. And I'm thinking, OK, how am I going to teach her to hold a football and kick a field goal and things like that? Because that's very important in the life of uh, any daughter of mine. But Paul, as he's writing here, is showing an example of what really counts. And field goals only count three points. But spirituality is the imperative, isn't it? And as Paul is writing to this church that he loves, and he wants to show how he has poured his life into the church, he takes as the example of a father and how he is to pour his life into the lives of his children. And in doing so, he is showing us what a dad does. Now, remember, uh, Paul did have a son of sorts, didn't he? His name was Timothy. And, and Timothy was not really Paul's son, but it was one of those wonderful experiences where uh, Paul met this young man, and he calls him in 1 Timothy chapter two, uh, 1, verse 2, Timothy, my true child in the faith. That was the basis of the relationship. And it was a, a love that Paul had for this man, and it was a love that caused him to pour his life into this man. And so much Paul poured his life into this man that he entrusted to Timothy the care of the church of Ephesus. You see that in 1 Timothy, in 2 Timothy as well, where Paul is just pouring himself into him. Now, here, I want us to look in these verses that are set before us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I want to lay it out in some very easy fundamental questions. And so this is not a, a heavy, detailed, obscure, theologically obtuse kind of outline at all. It's really three simple points. Who are we? That's important. And what do we do? And where are we going? Now, there's three that we can remember. Very easy. First of all, then, who are we? And how does Paul describe who we are? And he describes who we are in the verse that we just read by calling the brethren to remember what his life was with them, where he was in labor and hardship, verse 9, working night and day, desiring not to be a burden to the people, for he had one purpose in mind, and that was to proclaim the gospel of God. But now, in verse 10, he says this, and it's an important this, and it is that he calls God to bear witness of their life. Now, that's rather scary, isn't it? He says, you are witnesses, and so is God. We're always being watched. I always remember years ago hearing a sermon, and uh, it stands out of my mind, and I don't know how old I was when I heard it. I was just a little kid, and I remember the preacher. He was a guest preacher at our church, and he was talking about uh, a snowy night. It was a Father's Day message, and he felt to, to bring a snowy night into it, which uh, can happen sometimes, I guess, down east. But it was a snowy night, and his father always went out with, with the boys. He came home, dutifully had supper with the family, and then felt he had to go to the tavern with the boys. And he's, he's going, it's a snowy night, and he's stepping along, and he hears behind him the voice of his son, 
And he turns around and he says to his son, what are you doing out here? And the son said, I'm following in your footsteps. And the realization was, obviously, he's going out to drink with the boys. That was his priority. Didn't much care about uh, the priority of staying home with, with uh, his wife and kids. And here's this little gaffer coming along. And whose example is he following? He's following the example of the father. And he wants to step and emulate his father. And his father turned around, realized what a fool he was, gathered his boy in his arms, took him home, and never went back again. And Paul, as he's writing, is showing us and reminding us that we are public people. We don't like being public people. We want to be private people. We want to be people that live on to ourselves where we have our space. My mother didn't have space, but our generation feels we need our space. We need our territory. I don't need any intrusions. I want to be able to do my little thing in my little space. And Paul shows us that our life is lived publicly when he calls witnesses to bear upon himself and calls God to bear witness on his life. You're witnesses. You've been watching. We watch each other. We're people watchers, aren't we? And God is a people watcher too. He's watching us. And so Paul says, you are witnesses and so is God. Now what is God a witness of? And what are you and I witnesses of? as you and I observe one another, as you and I observe other people, as we go into our broadening circle of acquaintances and find ourselves in different areas and places, we become people watchers. What do we see? What do we want people to see? Now, our children are people watchers too. And what do we want them to see? As they observe, what do I want my daughter to see as she observes me? And I know she observes me. And it's frightening that she obser observes me. And uh, the Lord was merciful to me, I guess, because um, we only have one who is observing. I don't know what it would be like if there was, uh, was five pair of eyes watching me all the time. It's a frightening thought. Well, this is what he's showing. You're witnesses, and God is a witness. We're never alone, are we? Brenda Lee had it wrong, didn't she? All alone am I. I'm not going to go any further in the song, don't worry. Just a little bit. No, I won't. But there she is, all alone. No, she's not. We're not alone. We're never alone. We're never out of the gaze of God. Thomas Brooks, the great Puritan preacher, had to walk five miles one day. He was depending on a ride that was going to take him from one preaching station to another. And he was going to meet the ride at a certain place. And he said goodbye to the congregation. He has an afternoon preaching engagement. And it was a late afternoon kind of thing. And he was going to go someplace for lunch and then onward. And he walks to the place where he's to go and, and meet his ride. And the man with the wagon's not there. And he's all alone. And he prepared his message. He said, I didn't like the way my message went this morning. And he walked the five miles to church. And as he was walking along, and he writes in his devotional thoughts of the walk with God and having the preparation going on in his heart and realizing that God was observing him, observing his attitude, observing his attitude that he could have had. Who's the scallywag that didn't pick me up? Where is that, that guy? He was supposed to be here at a certain time. It wasn't that. He was thinking, thinking, thinking of God 
And he said, God was my witness. He was watching over me. He was watching over my attitude. He was watching over my thought life. There is not a private bit about us that is not seen by God. But there's the public aspect as well where he says, you are witnesses. You're witnesses. You're watching. You're observing. Now it begs the question, what is being observed? Well, we're going to see here. What is being observed is this. It's the character of the man before God. And he says, you're witnesses of how devotedly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave before you. And he's talking of the believers here. And he's saying, you're witnesses of this. You're watching us. You're observing us. And Paul has the credentials to say that he was a man that by his natural disposition as being a man of God lived a life that was devoted. The, the Greek word is hosius. It means devoted duty. We don't like the word duty in our day and age. We don't want to do things by duty. But Paul was not ashamed to extract this word out of the Greek vocabulary and use it. It's oftentimes translated holily or holy living or holiness. It's actually not the same word at all. The word for holy is hagios, but this is a different word, hoises. And it has to do with a, a embracing of that object of devotion. Now you think of it in terms of a father coming home uh, to his children. And it's exciting uh, when a father comes home to children. The children are excited. He comes home. and Dad's home. Dad's home. And uh, the kid's department has been good that day. And the door opens. And the kids are running out. And here's dad. When we were down in Jersey at a uh, pastor's conference uh, a few years ago, uh, and, and when Pastor Smith got home, uh, the family was so excited to see him. The kids, they had a little adopted black gal, and I remember how excited she was to see her dad come home every day during the pastor's conference, and dad's schedule's a little different during conferences. And I remember this little gal and, and how excited she was, uh, and, and, and she just couldn't let go of dad. And dad had her up in his arms and hugged her and gave her a big kiss and gave her another kiss and a few raspberries for good measure. You know what a raspberry is. My daughter sure does. And, and all that. And then he places her down on the floor and he wants to hug his wife and, and the little one had got her right by the knee and is not going to let go of him. See, that's devotion. She's hanging on to dad for dear life and dad was the kind of dad that was being worth being hung upon for dear life by this little girl. And this is what Paul is saying. We, we, we embrace you. We're devoted to you. And that's the relationship of pastor to church. Yes, but it's the relationship of dad at home devoted to the family and hanging on to his family. We hang on to our family. We hang on to our family for dear life. You think I'm going to give my daughter away without a fight? Huh? We hang on. We're, we're devoted. We embrace and this is what Paul is saying in terms of the relationship. It is a relationship that is, is wholehearted and devoted and absolutely unflinching. We're a culture of flinchers, aren't we? When things don't go right, ah, that's it. We're out of here. Paul says, no, you're witnesses. This is how we were. We were devoted. Second, we were upright. I described in the Sunday school class this morning a man 
that I'll always remember, his name was Mr. Quigley, sorry for you that we're here, your board, I'll try to keep you engaged. He was bolt upright. If ever there was a man that was upright, if posture described being upright, this man was upright. It was straight as an arrow, but he was also straight as an arrow in his living. He wasn't all over the place. Every once in a while, I'll see something. I saw a man the other day, and he was about my age, and he, it was 11 o'clock in the morning, and he and I are, are gassing up our automobiles. I don't want to use, I have to explain it's automobiles that are getting gassed. And so we're, we're, we're filling up our, our cars, and I look at him. He's got his PJs on, and he's got nice, long, flowing gray hair. I have, anyway, I have hair. And then I noticed something, the, the glint in the eye, and I thought, oh, the sun had caught his earring. And now I'm calculating and pumping. I had it preset, so I knew it wasn't going to overflow. And I'm thinking, I wonder how old he was when he got that. And what goes through a, a man's mind when he reaches a certain age where somehow he thinks he has to reach back and grab onto adolescence in all of its weirdness and wildness and somehow adorn himself with that and say, I'm, I'm one of you guys. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. We were talking, coming over this morning, I love young people. I love teenagers. I love our kids. And, and, and have found it a joy and a discipline uh, to be engaged with, with kids all these years. But you know what? As much as I love them, I don't want to be like them. I'm not trying to go that way because they're coming this way. And I don't want them to come this way and see me going that way. They need to see a man who's a man, a woman who's, who is a woman, and I know it's not Mother's Day, but they need to see a man and a woman that aren't trying to be teenagers. Teenage years are over with. They're over with in our house on July the 1st. Algano. We don't have 20 teen, 21 teen, 33 teen, or 60, 16. It's done. And Paul says, we're upright. We're straight up. People know who we are, and our life is lived with, with perspective. And Paul says, this is how we live. We're upright with direction. That's the whole connotation of the word. We're not all over the place. We're not waiting for the next fad to come along, and we're going to jump on the fad wagon. He says, we're upright, we're blameless. We're blameless. Does this mean he is sinless? No. We're not sinless, but we are blameless. Now, the only way in which we can become blameless is to keep a short account when we sin. Struggle with my dad for years. You know, my dad was a miserable and lonely man. And I said to myself, I'm not perfect, but I know one thing sure, sure. Now, I love my dad. I led my dad to the Lord a few months short of his death and struggled with this man who was so angry, so bitter, and let everybody around know that he was an angry and bitter man. And I said to myself, why are you doing this? Why are you like this? Mom and I are having fun doing dishes. We're doing all sorts of stuff. Why is it that way? And the reason why it was that way was this. And it's a reason for any sinner. 
A man that will not confess his sin is a miserable man. And he drags the sins, all those sins, accumulated, 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 more and more and more, year in and year out. John writes and says, if we say we have no sin, we lie. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yeah, okay, but what if you don't confess your sin? That's what you're devoted to. That's what you're clinging to. That's what you're carrying. I got to tell you, I haven't got time to carry that kind of burden. Life has enough pressures of its own. Why should I carry on confess sin? Paul says, notice our behavior. We were blameless. We keep a short account with God. Remember, don't let the sun go down on your anger. I go to bed at night and I'm a happy camper. Am I perfect? No, no. Was it a good day? <laughs> Not always. But I want to make sure, and you want to make sure, men, that when it's time to roll up the, the sidewalk, whatever time it is in your house, that we don't end the day mad. We don't end the day angry. We don't end the day with hostilities. We don't end the day carrying this whole ball of, of sin that's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and snowballed and now here we are now we're going to go to bed with it and it happens to be you and Paul says we are blameless there can be no accusation you can accuse people of being a stick in the mud and everything else but in terms of being one who is at the place of confession at the place of forgiveness that's where we're to be. That's how we're to be seen. And Paul never said, you could look at me and say, I'm blameless in terms of sinless, but you could look at him and say he was blameless because he was up to date on his confession. He was up to date on his pursuit of holiness. He was up to date on his desire to pray to God. His prayer life was not something that happened once in a while. This is the man that said, pray without ceasing. This man was up to date. He was on target day in and day out. Is that easy? No, that's hard. But that's what we're to be. And so he says, notice us. Notice how we were, how we behaved. Notice uprightly, blameless. Notice how we behaved toward you believers. And you can transfer it into the home. Notice what we're like. We should want, quite frankly, and this is frightening, we should want our sons, our daughters, to say, you know, dad at the church, I should want my daughter to say, dad at the church is the same way as he is at home. Now, I'm not going to put her on the spot. And don't let them bribe you. <laughs> but that should be the desire of every dad. I want my wife to say, this is the way he is at home. This is the way he is at church. At, at church, at the office, at the plant, at the factory, at whatever it is that he does. This is, he, he's the same man. He goes out, he may come home a lot more tired and a lot more dirty and grimy and grubby from the day he's put in. But this is the same man. He is not two-faced. And Paul is offering that and saying, that is what we are. That's who we are. And we're to labor at that. It's our relationship with God that is to be the life changer, isn't it? Well, very quickly, what are we to do? 
And this comes hard, and it comes real hard. It comes hard on a number of counts, particularly for some uh, who were born and, and our, our fathers were away from home a lot. And that was difficult. My father joined the army, and uh, uh, he, he followed along with his brother. He was, went, was uh, away from home a lot. He was in uh, St. John's, Newfoundland, which was as far as he went in the, first, in the Second, War, uh, Second World War. Uh, in the Korean War, he was one of the first to go to Korea. He was away for that. There was a lot of times where he was up to Oromocto for doing things in New Brunswick and, and back and forth and so forth and so on and away from home a lot. And then he became a candy salesman, a delightful job, enjoyed the candy, uh, but he was away from home a lot all over again. His father uh, left the family, deserted my grandmom and six kids, and they were in the process of adopting a child and left them in utter destitution. My father didn't know what it was to have a father. And my father didn't know what it was to be a father because he didn't have the example of the father before him. And you can imagine the challenge that I had in being a father in the difficulties that we had in our household and, and all of that. And, and, and Paul is writing here and he's saying some things that come most unnatural to men. And notice what he says. He says this, just as you know how we were exhorting, verse 11, encouraging and imploring each of you, and this is going really well, and you say, yep, that's good. If he had stopped right there, I'd say, ah, oh, yeah, okay, I'll do that. But notice the example. We are exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children. And you say, well, you mean a dad does that? And that becomes most unnatural to us. If you have a background uh, similar to mine, or even remotely similar, where you have a long-distance father relationship or a father that doesn't communicate, and now you have the burden of having these kids, and now you're supposed to communicate, and you've never seen how a father communicates, it becomes a real challenge. And we'd like to say, well, I guess I'll take a free pass on that, but the reality is we don't have a free pass on it. And so Paul writes, and he says, this is what we're to do. And if you, you say to yourself, I don't know how to do that, then you say, Lord, you have to teach me and surround me with men that are encouraging, men that have a good word to say and teach me to say something good once in a while. And so he says this, here's what we're to do. We're to be an exhorter. The word is parakleo. And it has, has in its context the idea of not just challenging, but also of comforting. And we're to labor to be that. We want to challenge our children, but we want to comfort our children. We want to challenge them in terms of their faith to come to Christ. We want to challenge them in terms of the work that they do, whether it be work around the house or whether it be work in school or whether it be an outside job. We want to challenge them to give themselves to that. But at the same time, we want to comfort them when the marks aren't what they should be, when the job's not going the way you thought it would go, and when life seems to have a whole bunch of speed bumps, bumpity, 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 bump. Because that's exactly what life has. And it's the father's responsibility. You say, well, don't mothers do something? They had their day. That was Mother's Day. We'll do that next year again. But, but this is Father's Day. And this is our responsibility. Paul says so. God's word says so, that I'm to give myself to having an exhorting word. It's a, almost like a cheerleading word, calling and urging on 
follow on, carry on, keep at it. Don't, don't get discouraged. Don't stop. And that's our responsibility. That's our responsibility in the church, isn't it? Come on, carry on. You've got to press on. Well, there's so many things that have gone wrong in my life. Well, I understand that. Let's not go through the inventory. Let's look to Christ and carry on and push on. And he says, that's what we do as fathers, as a father would his own children, where we're to give ourselves to doing that. We're to give ourselves to consoling. We're to give ourselves to the, the ministry of, of imploring, imploring each one, he says. We have to implore. We have to urge upon. Uh, the word implore comes from witness, incidentally, and it's a fascinating word because it really has in its context the idea of looking to the example and then passing the example on from yourself. So we look to Christ and we follow after Christ and now we're passing our example on to our children. And it becomes very imperative at that point to be so following the Lord Jesus Christ that we're able to say to our children, follow me, follow me, do what I do, look at me and follow in my way, be like me, follow my example. And the scriptures are full of that exhortation over and over and over again, aren't they? Paul holds himself up as an example. Our snobbish culture would say, who does he think he is? He is one who is able to hold himself up as an example. And that's what we're to do. He later on, just a couple of pages over, when he gets to the end of, of this book, and it's fascinating how he has this summary statement conveniently located at the conclusion, so that when he's coming down to the point of saying, and in conclusion, he starts to draw all sorts of conclusions as to what we're to be as, as God's people. And he says this in verse 14 of the last chapter of this book. He's urging the believers, and he's requesting that they, they, they follow on. And he says, uh, we urge you, brethren, verse 14, chapter 5, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. It's, it's, it's the church family, but it's also our family. It's your family. It's my family. What is the church? It's a collection of families. And Paul extracts this little summary statement, and it really does follow the same pattern of what's set before us here. And that is that we're to be hands-on in the caring for, in the nurturing of, in, in the, the, the ministry to our children. We oftentimes think, well, that's mother's responsibility. See, it's the first one that when I came home from school, I didn't come home and say, hi, Dad, I'm home. It was, uh, hi, Mom, I'm home, and then go to the refrigerator. And, and that was the pattern of life. The fact that mother is the home body, is the nurturer, and, and is, by all reports, the better nurturer, does not give the father an exemption from being a nurturer does not give the father uh, an exemption for life where whenever there's a problem, go talk to your mother. Go see her. She'll take care of it. Uh, I handle the money. What do you want? 50 cents? I can give you 50 cents. He says, no. He says, look at me. Paul's a man. And he holds himself up. And he says, this is it, man. This is what we're to be. We're to be exhorting, encouraging, imploring 
I don't feel like it. That's not the issue. You notice how in Scripture there's never an exemption that says, only applicable when you feel like it. It doesn't work that way, does it? And Paul shows us, who are we? We're those that stand before God as those who are laborers, who are devoted, who are upright, who are blameless. What are we doing? He says, we're exhorting, we're encouraging, we're imploring. What if they don't want to be those things? That's, that doesn't negate our responsibility to do those things. What if my kids are totally irres uh, irresponsible and unresponsive to everything that happens in the house, around the house, and everything I say to them? Paul doesn't say, oh, well, you're exempt. No, he says, keep on. And you notice exhorting, encouraging, imploring are continuous action. And they're not conditioned by the response that you get from your children. You'll find yourself, and some of you who are older and, 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 and you're, you had your children at the normal time as opposed to me, uh, you, you look back and you say, I, I poured my, my life into my kids and they never listen. What do I do now? Well, here's what you do. You pour your life into your children and you continue imploring, you continue to exhort, you continue to, to encourage along the way. It never stops. It never stops. Lastly, we need to know where we're going, then we need to stop. Verse 12, where are we going? How are we living? What's it about? Well, he tells us, and he says this in verse 12, because this has a purpose. All of this comes to this wonderful little conclusion, and it's this, so that you would walk in a manner we want them to walk in a manner. But in order for them to have this example that is stuck between their eyes so that every time they look, every time they go out of the house, every time they're away with their friends, whatever is taking place, they to have the reminder, mom and dad, mom and dad, mom and dad. Mom and dad are home, and mom and dad have certain expectations, and mom and dad expect this behavior, and mom and dad expect me to live this way, and I'm to do this and that and the other thing. And that is to be placed before them constantly. We're to haunt them with our example of consistency, not perfection, we're not, but we are to haunt them with our consistency on their behalf. And so Paul, once again, doesn't talk about whether they accept it, whether they, whether they like it, whether they appreciate it, or whether they'd rather say, oh, go jump in the lake. What does he say? This is being done so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you. We have the highest calling in the world. We're called to be his. And we're to yield ourselves day by day by day by day. Remember Israel's in the wilderness. And how do they get fed? Day by day. They get up. They get fed. They go on. You get up, get fed, go on. You get up in the morning, what do we do? We have to put on the whole armor of God. We're to adorn ourselves with gospel armor. We're to adorn ourselves with gospel virtues. We're to pray into our lives what God has called us to be. And we're to labor and labor and labor and labor 
and have that principle driven home in our lives. You see, if it's not driven home in our lives, then why would we ever expect it to be driven home in their lives? If they don't see some smattering of this in our lives, why would they ever find it attractive enough to embrace it in their lives? Now, does that mean they're not accountable? No. No, they are accountable. They are accountable. You and I are accountable to do what we're called to do in the station of life where we are. They are accountable to obey and follow in the station of life that they're in. So Paul says, we're to walk in a manner worthy of the God who has called us. That's hard. That's scary. It's intimidating that we're to walk in a worthy manner as one who has been called by God. Then he goes on and he says this, who has called you to his own kingdom and glory. God has called us and given us a high calling. It's a gospel calling. And we're to live that calling day in and day out, day in and day out, over and over and over again. Well, it begs the question, do, do your children, and I'm here too, do they see in us uh, a dad who is zealous for their salvation in Christ? Do they see us as those who are zealous for God, zealous for his glory, zealous for his honor? That's what we're to be. This is not about, is there an easy way? There is no book, Fathering, Make Easy, that holds up to the standard of God's word. Mothering is hard. Fathering is hard. They're challenging. They're difficult. And they have many, many pitfalls. And we find ourselves oftentimes falling into every one of them. And Paul, without hesitation, tells us we're aiming high. We're in his kingdom. We're his people. And we're to follow hard after him. Father heard his child praying one night and, and, and saying... Uh, Lord, make me good like my dad. And dad prayed, Lord, make me good like my son thinks I am. And maybe that's where we are. And let's pray. Father, help us to strive to be devoted, to be upright, to be holy. Help us, Lord, to give ourselves to encouraging, guiding, directing, laboring, to follow after your pattern. Father, we pray that you would help us to embrace not the ways of the world as marks of fatherhood, but embrace the spiritual virtues of holiness that we would grow in Christ and that our children would look at us and recognize that we're men who love you and help us, Lord, to be men who love you, who bring honor and glory to you. We pray this for our sake. We pray it for the sake of our children. We pray it for the glory of Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.